At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 622nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who works to protect the land that produces our food. We're talking with Leon Kolonkowitz about preserving quality farmland. Leon is a consulting environmental scientist and planner. He has managed environmental impact statements on projects ranging from dams and reservoirs to flood control facilities, roads, parks, power plants, oil drilling, and mines. He has assisted the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the preparation of management plans at 50 national wildlife refuges in many states. Receiving his B.S. at Virginia Tech and a Master's of Science at the University of British Columbia during his career, he has worked for several agencies, including U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation, National Marine Fisheries Service, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras, and as a consultant. Welcome to the show today, Leon. Are you ready to rock? Oh, you bet. Glad, glad to be here, Greg. Thank you for being here. This is a really important conversation today. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, as a kid growing up in the, in the woods and fields of western Pennsylvania on one of the tentacles of suburbia jutting out into former farmland and former stripped mined areas, I used to enjoy, you know, going literally from my backyards into the woods. And Mm -hmm. instead of spending all day gaming in front of a screen, like so many kids do now, I'd be off in the woods all day. And, uh, you know, it's embarrassing to admit now, but I would take a stick and pretend I was a fighter pilot like my uncle was in the Korean War and uh, take a stick and just mow down swaths or rows of mayapples, a little plant, a little herbaceous plant growing like a carpet in the eastern deciduous forests. Uh, so I had a love of nature and, and wild things, even as a kid growing up on the edge of the country, although not a country boy. And by the time I got to high school, I, you know, I realized I would like to sort of naively thought, oh, I'd like to become a park ranger. You know, one of these people who rides around in a smoky the bear hat on a, on a oh, horse right. and mm-hmm. protecting wild critters and so forth. But what I did ultimately wasn't all that different. Uh, when I uh, got my bachelor's uh, at uh, Virginia Tech and later master's at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, I then went to Alaska and actually for a number of years was living in the wilderness, not just the woods anymore with old strip mines on it, but in raw pristine wilderness with 600 and 700 year old Sitka spruces and western hemlocks in the Tongass National Forest, the largest national forest in the United States in 
the rugged panhandle of Alaska. We call it the Alaska Panhandle. Alaskans call it uh, Southeast Alaska, but it's hard to think of anything in that great northwestern state as being in the southeast, right? Right. So I got to do that sort of thing. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, as you mentioned, in Central America, working on behalf of tropical rainforest and wildlife protection in these beleaguered Central American, in one of the beleaguered Central American republics, which at that time was referred to by National Geographic magazine as the eye of the hurricane, because there were civil wars going on in Nicaragua, Mm. El Salvador, and Guatemala all around, Honduras. Uh, So I I guess uh, I would say that being in nature, conserving nature, managing natural resources has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember, Greg. Well, thank you for doing that. That's just so important. We found you because of a report that you did titled Population Growth and the Diminishing Natural State of Arizona. Just coincidentally, I live in Arizona. You don't. You live in Pennsylvania. So right. this is a this is a looks like a large report and what we're most interested in is farmland lost and I right yeah so that's where I want to dive in to today yeah, yeah yeah what did you find about farmland loss in not just in Arizona but everywhere well we've done a series of these studies on population growth and urban sprawl in a number of states and a number of regions like the Piedmont region of Georgia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and we've been doing them for 20 years at the national scale and at the state and regional scale, as I say. So if if you step back and look at the big picture, urban sprawl, development of land, what agricultural or scientists call the conversion of land from cropland, pasture land, and rangeland into what they what the Natural Resources Conservation Service or NRCS, formerly the Soil Conservation Service mm-hmm. or SCS, what they call developed land is is occurring at the rate of over a million acres a year. Basically, every person added to the U.S. population consumes, on average, somewhere between a third of an acre and a half of an acre, not just for the home or the lot that they're on, but to provide for all of their needs, right? Transportation, education, shopping places, job sites, all of that adds up to about a third to a half an acre per person. It varies a lot from region to region and state to state. Uh, Arizona is sort of right in the middle in terms of the average land consumption per person. But with all of that massive population growth in Arizona over the past, uh, well, really over the past century, but especially since World War II, of course, you've seen a lot of pressure on farmlands, not only on the land itself, right, competition for the same land, but for the water that, uh, mm, right. that farmers in Arizona need to grow crops because it is such an arid state, right? Yeah. You can grow crops in the desert, but you have to get some source of surface or groundwater. I think about, uh, what is it, some, some more 70 to 80 to 90% of, agriculture, of, of cropland in, in Arizona is irrigated from yes. the Colorado River, from aquifers, mm-hmm. all of which are being drawn down. And if you've lived in Arizona for a while, as you have, you know that the Colorado River and the sustainability of withdrawals from the Colorado River is a huge issue. It is drying up or shriveling. I think there's 20% less water flowing through the Colorado River now than there was at the turn of the century, 20, 21 years ago. Yeah. Lake Mead is down to almost drought levels. I think it's at uh, 
38% of capacity. When it was built, it was actually the largest reservoir in the entire country, ironically, right? Because the Colorado River certainly isn't one of the rivers with the greatest flow. It's probably not in the top 10 of U.S. rivers in terms of its flow. But they made that river massive so that it had a lot of, excuse me, they made the reservoir massive, Lake Mead, behind the Hoover Dam there, to have a lot of storage capacity so it could meet these various demands for hydroelectricity, for irrigation, and for the booming urban population of Southern California, Southern Nevada, and uh, Arizona. Arizona, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a huge, huge issue. And what we found is that development in Arizona pretty much is following population growth, right? Mm-hmm. I think we found that something like uh, 90% of the sprawl is related to population growth in Arizona, not increasing per capita land consumption. When the sprawl issue was briefly on the nation's radar in the late 90s, when Vice President Al Gore made it a big deal, I think even his, in his presidential campaign before he you know, was defeated and then found uh, the even larger cause of global warming or global climate change. At that time, concern was growing about sprawl and, and, and kind of building on concern that had been there since the 1950s, since mm-hmm. the great baby boom of the 50s and the, the economic boom post-World War II. And so there were a lot of people concerned about these cities that were gobbling up the countryside like there was no tomorrow and never stopped growing and so forth. And at that time, though, we at uh, a group that I uh, collaborate with called Numbers USA were wondering, all right, whenever we see an article in the Washington Post on sprawl or one of the California newspapers, uh, the LA Times or what have you, it always is talking about low density sprawl, like population isn't even a factor, like the number of people who need a place to live has nothing to do the sheer amount of land area that they use, right? Yeah. And so we began to look for ways back in, again, 1999, 2000, 20 years ago, we began to look for ways to try and quantify the role of population growth in generating urban sprawl and the other factor, the increase in per capita land consumption, or what is sometimes called declining population density, right? Fed by uh, gas oh. subsidies, the growth of <clears throat> explosive growth of the suburbs, uh, you know, since World War II, you know, cheap land prices, cheap gas prices, et cetera, et cetera. So how much of it, how much of it was due to SUVs, cheap gas, and McMansions and ever larger yards, and how much of that growth and sprawl was due to population growth? That's what we were trying to find. So and, what we're seeing uh, then, yeah, from, from what I hear you saying, that w- the sprawl, basically us spreading out, buying land further yeah. out, that's what's consuming the farmland. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, farmland also has an issue with, with, other, with other things, of course. Erosion, yeah. uh, general land degradation, you know, the use of industrialized agriculture is very hard on, on the soils of, of farmland. So you'll get those degraded soils and eroded soils just from removing, you know, the crop cover or, or the vegetative cover, right, and exposing the soils underneath to water and air erosion. Even in Iowa, with its famed soils, lowest soils from glacial till and, uh, you know, windblown soils, very, very deep from having been covered with perennial grasslands mm-hmm. for millennia, even Iowa has lost half of its topsoil in the past hundred years. Yeah. And that, you know, is devastating for agricultural sustainability. Oh, yeah. To a point you can make up for it with inputs 
like uh, you know nitrate and phosphate fertilizers and others. But even those over the long term are, are sort of a dead end game or, or a blind alley. Phosphates come have, have to be mined; they're a non-renewable resource. Nitrates come from the Haber-Bosch process. Uh, they come from natural gas, basically, which is a non-renewable resource and will probably be pretty much exhausted by the end of this century when global population is projected to be another 3 billion higher, up at uh, 10 to 11 billion from what it is wow. right now. So we are facing all of these long-term trends. Uh, yeah, So, and the trend isn't quieting down. The question for me right. is, what can we do about this? Because really what we're talking about is future food security issues. So what is, right. what is the, what, what's our go-to here? How can we address this? Well, uh, we can stop putting so much pressure on land by dealing with uh, the population issue. Twenty-five years ago, under the Clinton administration, after Bill Clinton was impressed and inspired by the, the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, uh, Brazil, uh-huh. he established the President's Council on Sustainable Development, and they had uh, there was a number of tasks for, task forces that were part of that. One of them was the Population and Consumption Task Force, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at the two sides of the coin that increase human pressures on natural resources and the environment, including farmland. And so they advocated 20, a quarter century ago that the U.S. needed to stabilize its population and that the United States even needed to deal with the immigration issue because that was driving most future population growth. Now, we just got through the census, and there's been a lot of hand-wringing that the U.S. population grew by only, and I put that in, in scare quotes, only 22 million. <laughs> There's 22 million additional people wow. that need to be fed and you know, needs, you know, need all sorts of other resources, of course, yeah. just from 2010 to 2020, and growth with no end in sight. So this commission or task force 25 years ago recommended that we stabilize our numbers. We haven't done that. We should do that. There are a lot of techniques and methodologies for protecting soils, for limiting growth onto soils that don't have to do with population per se. The American Farmland Trust does a lot of good work in educating the American public about the loss of farmland and uh, using methods such as uh, conservation easements to try and uh, give farmers an incentive to keep their land in production and to not develop it. So uh, protecting soils, of course, there are a lot of conservation measures uh, uh, that have been employed ever since the the horrible dust belt days of the, well, dust bowl days, excuse me, of the 1930s when the Soil Conservation Service was founded. And indeed, erosion on American farmland soils right now is only estimated to be about a quarter of what it was you know, the better part of a century ago, and has even declined by 40% in the last 40 years. So there are all sorts of efforts that we can undertake to protect farmlands, protect the soils on those farmlands that are needed to produce crops, and to just reduce our demands on arable land, right? Yeah. What can our listeners do about this? Well, I think you can contribute to the effort to stabilize the U.S. population, Joining a group like Numbers USA, which is explicitly concerned with that, would be one thing. Mm-hmm. Supporting groups like the American Farmland Trust uh, that are working trying to educate politicians, policymakers, and the American public about the threat to farmland from development would be another thing that people can do. They live in rural areas themselves, of course. There's a number of uh, steps that you can take to conserve the soils on your land. 
you know, a, a lot of them have to do with uh, vegetative cover. Yes. You know, farmer techniques like organic farming or no-till farming. There are all sorts of like, exciting possibilities out there, and people need uh, to be inspired and incentivized, I think, to implement them. So what I hear you saying maybe is support your local farmer? Supporting local agriculture. Uh, heck, I go to I like to go to a place here back east uh, called the Silver Diner, not to put in a plug for any one place, but just in the last five years, I don't know the extent to which they're really doing this, but they have been saying that they're supporting local agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that movement to support local and organic agriculture, I think, that we as consumers can do is something that we can all participate in. Yeah. It varies a lot depending on the circumstances, but this may be controversial for some of your listeners, but certainly reducing red meat consumption is a way that we can reduce our per capita ecological footprint, right? Yes. Because uh, animals are higher up on the what ecologists call the uh, trophic, have a, occupy a higher trophic level, and it takes a lot of energy, water, and land to uh, feed those animals. In some places, you know, like natural rangeland, if you're not going to have elk on it, you may as well have livestock. And that doesn't necessarily have the same types of ecological impacts that growing corn and so forth to feed to, to livestock at the, you know, the concentrated agricultural feeding lots, the effects that those have. At any rate, reducing meat consumption, I, I wouldn't say one has to go vegan or vegetarian, but just anything you can do to reduce Reduce that red meat consumption reduces your personal impact on you know farmland. But again, there are a number of different over-related, interrelated issues here that we can do to uh, ensure the sustainability of our food supply and try and what's the word enhance our food security as the century marches on. When it's it's really being cognizant that there's a problem because many people don't even know there's a problem. That's right. Yeah, I, I think you know th- there's. A former Secretary of the Interior, who hails from the great state of Arizona, once said or once referred to of uh, the, the myth of superabundance. Do you know who that person is I'm talking about? Was that Babbitt? I'm not sure how many. Pardon? Was that Babbitt? Oh, well, actually, Bruce Babbitt followed in his footsteps in the in the Clinton administration in the 1990s. He, uh-huh. he was a great conservationist. But no, I'm thinking of Stuart Udall. Oh, well, okay, there also, you go. Uh, yeah. had, you know, was a congressman from um, Arizona. Later on, Morris, Mo Udall, Morris Udall, was yep. also, his brother was also a congressman from Arizona. But Stuart Udall was appointed Secretary of the Interior under uh, President Kennedy and served in that role as well in the Johnson administration. He authored a great book called Quiet Crisis on on the American conservation movement. And in it, he referred to the myth of superabundance, kind of that pioneering idea that, you know, cowboys and pioneers and colonists had that there's always more land, right? Yes. Degrade this land, we'll just go over the hill to another valley and find more land, more trees to chop down, more soils to use, more oil to tap into. There will always be more. So the, the oceans are unlimited. It's all part of this myth of superabundance. Well, we w- ran out of that frontier a long time ago, and now we've got to manage and husband and be good stewards of what we've of what we've got and try and make it you know try and make it last as long as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the other things you can do, I know that we're working on a farmland trust 
process here in the state of Arizona, there are nonprofit organizations out there that are setting up trusts to buy farmland and put it in trusts so that it's always farmland, is there not? That is fantastic. Yeah. You know, I can I can understand the perspective of an individual farmer, and there are literally millions around the country yep. who work their butts off for decade after decade, and as the area, you know, the development frontier grew ever closer to them, they saw that land as a nest egg for their retirement. Right. And I don't begrudge someone doing that, uh, but exactly. we ought to offer them other opportunities. Mm-hmm. And again, there wouldn't be so much development pressure if there weren't so much population growth in the first place. Ah. <sighs> Amen I think those are great ideas. Yeah. I think those are great ideas, you know, the the, the conservation easements, agricultural conservation easements and yeah. and the trust, the land trusts as you say, which you can have both for like like the nature conservancy basically buys yes. land to put them in the land trust to preserve biodiversity, but there are a number of other organizations around the country, local and national and regional and statewide that look to allow farmers to, you know, keep their own land as productive farmland. Basically, they're buying development rights. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a note here from Janice that says, ask about the proverb. Ask about the proverb. Oh, <laughs> I think it, this is something that I had referred to uh, in my conversation with her about an old Chinese proverb, and I'm not sure that it is. Uh, there are many things that are chalked up to being old Chinese proverbs, but this was a very wise saying that if you keep going in the direction you're headed, you may actually get to where you're going. You may or may not want to go there. And so on a lot of these long-term conservation issues, mm-hmm. protecting fisheries in the oceans, forestalling climate change and the buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere, protecting our soils, a lot of your listeners may know that it takes anywhere from, depending on the, the, the place, 500 years to 1,000 years to produce an inch of 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 topsoil. Yes. And so when you lose it, it could be centuries before that can be replaced. And yet, because it's under our feet, it's almost like in many instances is beneath our dignity even to consider it, out of sight, out of mind. And so that's what the the, the proverb was, I believe, that uh, Janice is referring to. Yeah. What you're you're a long time thinker about this stuff. I'm a long time thinker about this stuff. I've been I've been delving into these conversations since the 1970s. How do you stay on the positive in your mind with all of this stuff? Well, b- believing that you know people can make a difference. Uh, yeah, I've seen it in the conservation sphere. I'm, I'm a wildlife biologist by by training, and I've seen how a number of species, which were listed as endangered species, are including our own national symbol, the bald eagle, have come back, some of them from the brink of extinction. Mm-hmm. There's another wonderful bird called the hooping crane. There were, I think, less than, uh, well, certainly less than 50 in the entire world at one wow. time. The California condor, there were only 19 left. Those are examples of species that have been brought back from the brink of extinction because people believed in them and were willing to give them some tender, loving care. Now, if you would like to see our civilization last for as long as it can, recognizing that nothing, including individual human lives, nor civilization, nor even planet Earth will last forever, but we would like to get as much, you know, we would like our civilization and the biosphere to, you know, last as long as possible as a well-endowed, rich place that allows both people and the wildlife that inhabit this planet with us to continue for as long as possible, then I think you can sort of set that as your even star, your evening star, and uh, peer in that direction. And if it's important to you to feel like you're doing something to 
like it is for me, obviously, or I wouldn't, yeah. still wouldn't be involved with these issues. After exactly. 50 years, uh, you know, continue to, you know, dedicate a bit of your life to, to those causes, but also live in and enjoy the moment, uh, which we don't have an unlimited number of. Yeah, there you go. So the document is called Population Growth and the Diminishing Natural State of Arizona. We will have a link to that in the show notes for today's podcast if you want to uh, if you want to check it out. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, this is this is very personal for me because it uh, it relates to my own family, and uh, as you and your listeners have gathered protecting, you know, being a conservationist, living as a conservationist, living my ideals has been important to me ever since I was a teenager. So we're talking uh, 50 years now, basically. Mm -hmm. And I always, you know, I I was never too much of a proselytizer getting up on my soapbox and, you know, preaching to the world, but I always wanted to try and make a difference. And where you can start making a difference is in the people you know in your own family, right? So over the years, I remember uh, I was proud of my dad when he bought a VW Bug or Beetle back in the 1970s after the first so-called energy crisis, because I was always talking about the need to not waste gasoline, right? Not drive gas guzzlers. Yeah. I was concerned about population growth since the time the book, The Population Bomb, was published in 1968. (laughs) And overall in my family, you know, we we certainly have fewer children than, than than our parents and aunts and uncles did, but you know I have a I have a sister with five kids who loves me and respects me, but she just didn't feel like my message on the population issue meant that it applied to her life. And and I have virtually everyone in my family drives gas guzzlers again now. Once the gas price went down, and it seemed like there was an endless supply of fossil fuels out there, so I had to, that. At one time, I kind of considered that, wow, what hope is there for me to feel like, you know, I can talk to people and have them make a difference when people who love and respect me and my own family, I don't seem to have influenced even them. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a, a tough message for any activist on any issue or set of issues to have to accept that there are people who are good people who just see the world in different ways and have different priorities than, than those that you have. And if you're not going to be a zealot, you have to just accept that and move on, not necessarily yeah. abandon your activism, but accept the fact that um, it may or may not make a difference in anyone else's life at all. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I had mentioned that I was a, a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I worked for a group called the Honduran Ecological Association, as a as a, a technical a technical advisor in Honduras in the late 1980s, and what I what became my pet project was a proposed new national park in a cloud forest in a rainforest in a beautiful mountain range behind the Caribbean port town of La Ceiba, named for the grandest uh, Central American rainforest tree, the Ceiba tree, and. This proposed national park was called Parque Nacional Pico Bonito, Pico Bonito, which literally means pretty peak national park. And I felt that this mountain, Pico Bonito, pretty peak, rises 8,000 feet above La Ceiba. That's a lot of vertical relief. Yeah. That's 
much higher than the relief that you would have in any of the mountains in Arizona, for example, that <laughs> are higher mountains in terms of their elevation, yep. but they don't rise 8,000 foot from their base like Pico Bonito did from sea level. And you see it just jutting up into the sky right behind La Ceiba. So uh, I led expeditions, two expeditions to the summit of that mountain, which had only been climbed twice previously in history. And I dedicated myself to developing the first ever management plan for it, uh, soliciting international funding for it. Wow. And uh, had some satisfaction that it was declared as a national park and that um, it seemed to, you know, support among Hondurans uh, grew. When I went there, a lot of folks just saw, as a lot of Americans, for that matter, over the years, saw any land without people living on it or land that wasn't being used to grow crops as just wasteland, right? Mm -hmm. What good is it doing, right? Let's ignore the fact that there are howler monkeys, which are an endangered species, jaguars, harpy eagles, a number of endangered species living in these cloud forests and rainforests. And um, so at any rate, our, our conservation message was even though it's apparently unused, these lands, tierras silvestres, wild lands, are, being, are, are providing benefits to human beings and not just wildlife. In the case of this rainforest, it was the watershed, right. La Cuenca Hidrográfica, right, um, that was providing clean drinking water for the town of La Ceiba and a number of other smaller towns around the mountain range in a country where one of the leading causes of death was from dehydration from gastrointestinal illness from drinking contaminated drinking water. Wow. So um, when I came back to the States uh, in a couple of years, National Geographic magazine, you know, the glossy, wonderful magazine, had an article on wildlife conservation corridors in Central America, and I saw the national park whose boundaries I had helped establish at a workshop with you know, a number of Hondurans shown there in National Geographic magazine. And I thought, well, now I've made it, you know. Nice. This has got sort of international first world recognition, and I was part of that conservation effort. Wow. How cool is that? What drives you? You know, I think overall, in a nutshell, it's just the opportunity to feel like I'm contributing to environmental sustainability. Yeah which may even be a pipe dream. There are some, some people who think that because human civilization is so deeply in the ecological overshoot right now that sustainability is off the table. But, I, you know, I have to hope, and it's just in the core of, of who I am, I have to hope that there still is some hope and that, you know, this world and that the people and, and the critters that live in it are, are worth preserving. And um, I like being part of that effort to, so that, that, that helps drive me Beautiful from day to day. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, I, I, apropos you know, the topic of today, trying to uh, preserve farmland, the book I would recommend is by a, a, an agronomist uh, and scholar, and it's called Dirt, the Erosion of uh, Civilizations. And as he says, uh, dirt or soil, whatever you call it, is everywhere we go. It's beneath our feet, and it runs our farms, and it's under our cities. And he looks at the long, long sweep of dirt or soil in in the development and the disappearance of civilizations from ancient Mesopotamia 
to the Mayans in Central America, to the North American push westward across the prairies. So uh, he looks at how soils have shaped us and how we have shaped and damaged soil both in the past and at present. So really, really great book that I would recommend for its, again, sweeping view of you know, the, the, the long-term importance of soils in the, in the, in the, the rising of civilization, yeah. right? Once again, the conversations on the Urban Farm Podcast turn to dirt and soil and creating healthy soil. I love that because I particularly believe that it's the most important thing that we can be doing right now to grow healthy food is to grow healthy soil. It's, it, well, it's right up there. You know, without food to eat, uh, we can't think, uh, think much or do much about anything else. Uh, and, you know, without healthy food to eat, we're not going to be healthy. And without doing it in a way that keeps our lands and soils healthy, they won't be around to uh, provide that good for us. Yeah. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? There's a saying that an old wildlife biologist, a, a world-renowned or, or, interna- or internationally renowned here in North America, for his knowledge of wild plants, and in particular ducks and geese food, he a fellow from uh, Minnesota by the name of Fran Euler, Francis Maury Euler, old buddy of mine when I used to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And what Fran told me one day when I'd come back in from exploring out of the woods was, with a little curiosity, there's never a dull moment. <laughs> you know, that sort of philosophy helps us get through life, right? Yeah. I haven't been bored for 50 years. Right. And there's so many fascinating things to continue to think about. And, you know, sometimes do something about it if it's worth doing that. But you've got to be motivated by that curiosity. If I may, here's, here's a story from my Central American days. Please. Was when I was living in Honduras as a Peace Corps volunteer, one day or one year my cousin came down and uh, we traveled to Guatemala for, for two weeks. And we were visiting what the famous writer and philosopher in the 20th century author of uh, Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, he referred to this lake, Lake Atitlan, or Lago Atitlan in Spanish, surrounded by volcanoes as the most beautiful lake he'd ever seen in the world. And this was a guy who'd gotten around. So we were, my, my cousin and I were staying in the Indian village, Guatemalan or Mayan Indian village of Panajachel. And one day I went for a walk along a road above Lake Atitlan, and uh, I ran into this uh, Central American um, Mayan Indian fellow carrying a pile of leña, which is uh, you know big. Uh, what would you call it? Uh, not a pile, but a big mound of it on his back, right? Uh, uh-huh. Carrying it to either sell and from his village in, into town, or 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 to have something to you know uh, warm the water to cook their food with that night. And so we, we you know we saw each other, nodded, and my second language was Spanish. His first, second language was Spanish because, you know, as, as a descendant of the Mayans, he spoke one of the 22 Mayan uh, languages or, or, or dialects. Wow. And, uh, you know, he was a friendly guy. And so here we stopped, and somehow we got into a conversation about the solar system. And so using a stick <laughs> on this dirt road, I drew a diagram of the solar system, you know, with the sun in the center Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the other planets, you know, in concentric rings going around the sun. And this was a fellow who probably had no formal education at all, uh, may not have even gone to any school, 
or if not, certainly not beyond primary school. And he was just blown away by this diagram that I drew him. And, you know, he's pointing at it with his finger and so excited. And I thought, here is this fundamental element or fundamental human attribute of curiosity, mm. which is one of the greatest human attributes of all. It helps us, it gets us into trouble. As they say, it killed the cat. But it also is the reason that we are where we are today. And maybe, you know, if we ever do manage to save ourselves, maybe, you know, scientific curiosity will reveal or find something that gets us out of the pickle that we're in in so many ways now. So with a little curiosity, there's never a dull moment. One can only hope. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Leon. My my great pleasure, Greg. Great, Great talking with you. How can our listeners find you? Well, they can look me up at, um, I don't have my own website, but uh, if you were to uh, put my name in there and, and to go to numbersusa, numbersusa.com uh, and shoot off an email or look for my blog post there, you can find me that way. Perfect. 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 You can also find show notes from today's podcast, plus the report that Leon co-authored at urbanfarm.org forward slash Leon K. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.